I will work day in and day out to wake up and smell the coffee. We want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order. Hello and welcome to the debated podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined once again by Nick Thomas-Simmons, Shadow Minister without Portfolio, Member of Parliament to Vance, and author of Atley, A Life in Politics, a recent um, updated edition of which has just been published, which will be the subject of today's podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, Nick. Absolutely delighted to be joining you, Will. It's a delight to have you on once again. Now, the first question I'd like to ask is one of um, two parts. Um, why did you want to write this book in the first place? And why did you want to release a new edition of it? Well, firstly, because I think when you look at the prime ministerial league tables, and by the way, as a historian, I find the concept very difficult, but nonetheless, let's accept that certain historians do produce these things. Uh, Clem Attlee almost always comes up as in the top one or two of the, the post-war prime ministers, and, and quite rightly so. And when I originally wrote the book, it was for publication in, in 2010. It was because not only did I want to see why it was that he was so successful, but also this, this paradox, in a sense, as to why a government that achieved so much nonetheless was out of office after around about six and a half years and condemning the Labour Party to another to 13 years in opposition after that. So I was fascinated by him. Now, in terms of reissuing it uh, this autumn, uh, it just seemed to me we are in a period where the when you go on the doorsteps, people are talking about time for a change. Of course, really, you'd expect me to say that we're not taking anything for granted and we're going to fight for every vote over the next 12 months. But it just seems to me that as we have a period where possibly we could have once again privilege of going into government, it seemed a sensible moment to reflect on a Labour leader who succeeded so well with the levers of power after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And of course, the the the, the book begins with... Um... A discussion of, of, of Atlee's childhood. And what I think is interesting in the book is that you make clear that his upbringing is, is one of very solidly middle class and um, Victorian. How much of an impact do you think that that moderately Anglican established middle class background had on Atlee? And how similar or indeed different do you think his upbringing was as compared to the upbringing of, of other members of, uh, of his cabinet? Well, it, it's, his background is obviously a complete contrast to the first Labour Prime Minister, uh, Ramsay MacDonald, who obviously grew up in uh, abject poverty uh, in, in Scotland. And it's also very different to say somebody like Ernest Bevin or Aniron Bevan or indeed Herbert Morrison. Very, very different. Uh, I think what's fascinating, though, is he is both... He's shaped by his childhood, but he's not defined by it. And he, of course, goes to uh, Northall Place Prep School, goes to Haleybury, then on to Oxford University and briefly practiced as a barrister, but didn't really have very many cases. And you, you can't help but think that it was his father who, of course, was a solicitor who was president of the Law Society who had an influence on 
on Attlee's initial choice of career, though when it, it, it's interesting that when his father passes away in the later part of 1908, it's not long after that Attlee uh, leaves being a barrister. But the other things, I think, that come from Attlee's childhood are his patriotism. He often spoke of Queen Victoria's, uh, it was the, the 1897 uh, jubilee it would that, that, that uh, he he had he had these memories of the jubilees i think you think he had uh that in his head he always had this reverence for our constitution this mm-hmm. reverence for the monarchy but also i think he had this profound sense of service that came from that uh, came from that uh, background uh, as well he then of course leaves oxford as i've said but what i think is the transformative moment from this very conventional middle class, uh, as you say, high Anglican, pro-monarchy, attended obviously independent schools background, was, and he said it himself, it was when he went to the Stepney Boys Club, which was a club run by Haleybury in the east end of London, essentially to help out uh, poorer people and it's, th- it's that that transforms Attlee because he starts to see up close the impact of poverty and the conclusion that he drew then which I think it has a profound influence for his whole political career is that you couldn't rely on irregular private charity to produce a more equal society uh, in a way, perhaps that that Victorians saw charity as very important. Of course, he, he wasn't denigrating the notion of charity. He wasn't denigrating the notion of people wanting to give money to good causes. But he drew the conclusion that to deal with inequality, what you had to have was a government that was willing to make those changes. And, it, and it's that that he identifies himself in his autobiography as transformational. And I think it colours his whole career as a politician. Mm, absolutely. And w- one of the things that Attlee starts to um, do at, a, at, at around this time, one thing I found particularly fascinating when reading the book, um, was he begins to to, um, to to write poetry along a, a, a political line. How important do you think that poetry was in terms of him articulating his own opinions and beliefs? And why do you think he, he chose that particular um, medium of expression because it's, it's it's an interesting one for someone who is you know often associated with great reforming changes to the British state, seen as someone of very um, serious character. To have this early association with poetry and, and this early um, creation, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because he had this extraordinary love of literature and of poetry. He wrote an article in later life where he was talking about how much he treasured his his book collection. And he, he saw different books like Old Friends that he'd picked up at different parts of his life. And he also remembered he was very uh, young indeed, I think younger than 10, when Alfred Lord Tennyson uh, died. And he could remember that even when he was old and the significance of you know, the great Tennyson, uh, uh, you know, and his almost capturing of the Victorian mind. What I think is also significant, though, he he always uh, liked to pen poetry. But you have to remember, too, that he doesn't meet his uh, future wife, Vi, Violet Attlee, as she became, until after World War One. So 
there wasn't that person in his life that he could go home and confide to and speak to about awful things that happened during the day. So what he tended to do was to find expression in poetry. But in one sense, poetry is very aptly because Attlee never liked to waste words. Attlee was succinct. And in one sense, the medium of poetry, where you do try to express yourself in that very, very restricted uh, way, in a sense, perhaps uh, captures something about him as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned the First World War there. And of course, um, Attlee served during the First World War, eventually becoming um, a, a major at its end. But could you just explain what impact that had on him and also the, the impact on, on his brother um, Tom's life? Because, of course, there was quite a, a, an impact there as well, wasn't there? Well, th this is quite an extraordinary story because you, you first of all got the theme of service, the sense of duty that defined Clem Attlee. And he saw that as his duty in World War One. And remember, he wasn't someone who was conscripted into the armed forces in World War One. This is somebody who uh, joined up, who wanted to serve king and country. And indeed, if you look at his career from being one of the last on the beaches at Gallipoli, of course, which proved to be, in the end, a military uh, catastrophe, frankly, for uh, the British. If you look, too, at his service in what was then called Mesopotamia, if you look at his service uh, in France as well, he was injured on two occasions and ends up in hospital, of course, in London. And nearby in the prison was his brother Tom, and his brother Tom was there because his brother Tom was a conscientious objector. And I think this is fascinating because there is a lifelong correspondence between Clem Attlee and his brother Tom, which is a treasure trove for historians. But the fact Clem continued to write it shows to me that he had this quality necessary for all effective primaries, as he could compartmentalize. He could put one part of his life in one place and move on and do something else with another part. Because... If you put those two things together, Clem Attlee, injured in war, had put his life at risk time and time again. In contrast, obviously, to Tom, who was a conscientious object, you could see a scenario where Clem became very resentful of his brother in the comparative safety uh, of Britain when he was out risking his life. But actually, it showed Clem Attlee could compartmentalise and also showed really you know, his, his love of family, which I think is another defining feature throughout Dattley's career. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And of course, um, after service ended, he um, was elected mayor of Stepney. Now, what was the impact of his time as mayor of Stepney? It was obviously quite a, a, a brief time that he, he served, but he did have a, a, an impact on him, didn't it? He did have an impact. And I think there's, there's two things that happen here. I think firstly, he essentially runs the campaign where Labour takes control of the of the local council. Clem himself wasn't a candidate, but he gets invited, as you say, to be the mayor. And what he did see again in that role was the inequality that existed across between the richer London boroughs and the poorer London boroughs, which again reinforced this idea that it has to be the policy of central government if you want to produce more equal outcomes in society. But the second thing it did, his campaigning work, his service as mayor, gave him that stepping stone 
to be the Labour parliamentary candidate in Limehouse. It's essentially how he got to be in Parliament and gave him that that parliamentary seat that was to be his base for the decades afterwards. And I think for both those reasons, the, the, that period is actually very, very important in the course that his life subsequently takes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and of course, that um, election at Limehouse in, in 1922 was at a time when the Labour Party was um, really entering its own and, and, and would soon um, form a, a, um, a, a minority administration. Um, in terms of that election and when Attlee first entered Parliament, what do you think his feelings were when he first entered Parliament as, a, as, as, as an MP? Do you, do you think that he was aware of the scale of the challenge that was um, going to face Labour as it was coming not just into becoming the official opposition, but then eventually the, yeah, the government? I think she had a sense that the times were changing. And those three general elections, 1922, 23 and 24, uh, I would argue that taken together, they produce what is essentially today's party system, which is the two main political parties, Labour and Conservative, one being the principal opposition of the other at different times. And it put the Liberals into this third party position that they've they've never really uh, recovered from properly in the time since. Now, Attlee, of course, uh, comes in to Parliament in 1922. And this is the election where Labour has had one leader in the election, J.R. Klein's, but the returning Ramsay MacDonald then becomes the leader uh, after the election. And of course, I'm sure we'll come on in a moment, he had a quite complicated relationship with, with Ramsay MacDonald because he starts off as his parliamentary PPS, his bag carrier, his eyes and ears in the parliamentary Labour Party and saw at close quarters what pressures of the Labour leadership uh, were like. But then, of course, because Labour ends up as a minority government in January 1924, then gets a taste of ministerial office where he becomes appropriately undersecretary at the War Office. Now, that would be a natural extension for Attlee. He'd served in World War One, and he was also Major Attlee. And remember, they used to use their titles in the 1920s. So if you'd gone to Limehouse in this period, that their MP was Major Attlee. And so... He ends up getting to a position in 1924 where he's already had a taste of ministerial office and seen the Labour leadership at close quarters. Both things would prove very useful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and you, you touch upon that relationship with um, McDonald. How would you describe it? I mean, it wasn't uh, <laughs> necessarily um, throughout the course of their um, time together in, in Parliament the, the best relationship, was it? No, and it it began it began fairly well when he was McDonald's PBS. McDonald had appointed him then, as I say, to the War Office. But the relationship starts to go wrong in the later part of the 1920s. So, in opposition, Clem Attlee was appointed to what became known as the Simon Commission after Chair Sir John Simon, and it was to look at the governance of India, which of course at that time was was still uh, under British rule. And the the act, the, there had been a Government of India Act in 1919 that had this periodic review every 10 years of governance arrangements. Now, Attlee 
very loyally serves on the commission. The um, you know he, he goes out to India. He contributes very well to it. But had been told by Macdonald that if Labour came back into power, he'd be appointed a minister, and he shouldn't worry about serving on the Simon Commission being a disadvantage. Now. Labour comes back to power in May 1929, and Attlee comments, and he's very rarely negative about people in his autobiography, Attlee, but says that not only was he not appointed to the government, first of all, but Macdonald didn't even have the courtesy to speak to him and tell him. <laughs> and you can see the relationship starting to go wrong because he thinks Macdonald's broken a promise to him. Now, of course, what then happens is when Oswald Mosley uh, resigns from that government. Attlee replaced him as Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. It's not too dissimilar to the kind of cabinet office role of the of the modern day, where he was at the centre of things, helping again, helping Macdonald, whether it was with international conferences or particular areas like, for example, in agriculture, he often spoke about his worry about private profits being the motive above all else uh, in certain farming communities. But he then briefly, towards the end of the government, becomes the postmaster general for a few months as well. And this this was the, the if you like, the avant-garde technology of the age. You know, how do you take apart and clean your telephone was one of the things that he had to he had to deal with. But but then comes the breach in his relationship with Ramsay MacDonald, because of course, in the crisis of nineteen thirty-one. Macdonald becomes leaves the Labour Party and becomes Prime Minister of the National Government, and Attlee is scathing about his performance, Macdonald's performance in the election of 1931, where he used to wave around banknotes that Attlee criticised him for, essentially saying Labour's a threat to the economy, neglecting the fact he'd uh, been the, prime, the Labour Prime Minister for the previous two years. And secondly, I think Attlee's sense of loyalty, duty service just gave him this such a negative view of mcdonald from from then on and it, it their relationship never occurred mm -hmm. absolutely and you, and you touched upon um the simon commission there and obviously this in in many ways foreshadowed the eventual um act of independence uh yeah. 1948 what do you think we can judge as to um how Astley was forming his views of empire and in particular um indian independence from the Simon commission do, do you think we can draw any comparisons between what came after and, and what he did was on the committee because of clem Attlee's own personal journey we we can trace it to the simon commission and remember for Attlee it goes back even further because haleybury was regarded as the school to which those who became civil servants in India actually went to. So he's got this this very long-standing link. And Attlee himself was always a realist, a pragmatist on uh, India. And if you look at the Simon Commission, and what comes out of the Simon Commission initially is the Government of India Act of 1935. And there were things in it like provincial assemblies, essentially the first step on the road to uh, a you know what what India is later to become you know a, a a huge democracy, baby steps of course, there was still huge power for the British uh, you know for the viceroy still huge power, but it, it was starting to to change and a lot of the you know right wing conservatives objected to it, but that then comes into uh, into force but of course 
you then have this this other episode of Attlee's career where he is briefly Dominion Secretary in World War II, and they had huge problems in terms of protection of India. He was the one who, ironically, of course, ordered the arrest of Gandhi and Nehru in, in World War II for reasons as he saw he saw it. I mean, it was uh, undoubtedly suppression. It was undoubtedly not, not something Attlee would ever have done in peacetime, but Attlee felt this was the necessity of war. And then you get to a stage in 1945 and independence for India and how that pans out. Attlee's leadership style was about allowing a decision to be reached. He very rarely led from the front in terms of forcing his own opinions on colleagues. You know, he, he famously said that uh, democracy was about government by discussion, but it only works if you can stop people talking. And of course, that's how he saw cabinet efficient, reaching conclusions. But there were a couple of areas. One, which uh, is a slightly different issue, but illustrates the point around Britain's development of its own nuclear deterrent, which was done in secret from most members of the cabinet. But secondly, on India, where Attlee, in effect, was his own Secretary of State for India. And of course, he makes that change of Viceroy, where he changes uh, Wavell for Mountbatten for the last few months, sets a deadline, uh, and then, of course, uh, you get Indian, you get independence for India. So there's a real you know, Atlee's journey with India, it's not linear because you have to take into account the suppression in World War II. But he always has this interest and passion about India, which you could go back as far as Haleybury with, frankly. But you, ha but you, we have to see all that as part of the journey to where he gets to. And later, you know, Francis Williams, who interviewed him, I think it was in the very early 1960s, asked him what he thought his greatest achievement was, and he said, India possibly. Absolutely, and he, he certainly was a, a, a significant um, achievement. But to, but to go back to the, the 1930s and the, the 1931 election in particular, um, Attlee isn't sure when that election calls, if he wakes up the next morning, if he'll be a member of parliament the next day because of the colossal losses that Labour suffered. Um, in that 1931 general election. What do you think when he awoke, found himself still a member of parliament, were his first thoughts? Do you think that he realised that out of the remaining MPs that Labour had at that point, that he was going to take a much more significant role in, in the leadership of the party than, than he had previously? It, it was obvious that he had to do that. And, and the, the sense he felt post that election. Remember, he survived, I think it was 551 votes. It was a very, very narrow escape. And Labour has 52 MPs. Remember, they'd won 288 in 1929. So this was a decimation on a scale that, you know, even, even if we think of 1983 and 2019, they don't compare to this. This was a catastrophe. Now, the problem was that if you look at where MPs had survived, they tended to have survived in what are still the strong labour areas today, the mining areas of the country. But they were MPs who wanted to be backbenchers. They were not MPs who had come in at a point they wanted to climb the greasy pole. So it was, and Atlee felt this profound sense again of duty and responsibility because three people 
uh, end up sharing the job of leader in effect. And they are George Lansbury, uh, Stafford Cripps, and Clem Attlee. And they literally had to work around the clock to ensure, ensure that somebody was at the dispatch box to be able to carry out the functions of opposition. And there is no doubt, really, that it propelled Attlee from someone who was a middle-ranking, competent uh, minister in both of McDonald's, uh, as it turned out, governments, to somebody who had literally now been thrust forward into the leadership by virtue of the circumstances. But it is to Attlee's huge credit that, of course, when it came to the leadership election of 1935, he emerges from that as the leader. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and could you just explain um, how he managed to emerge as, as, as leader of 1935? Because it's quite a, 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 an interesting story, particularly in terms of his relationship with George Lansbury. Yes, so the, the issue, the defining foreign policy issue of the 1930s is obviously the aggression of dictators whether that's Hitler, uh, Mussolini, for example, and how Britain responded to it. And the big change that happens in the Labour Party is to move from George Lansbury, who was a pacifist, to a position where in 1939, Clem Attlee could support uh, the country in war and actually ends up, of course, joining the war cabinet, being deputy prime minister. Now, what happens here in 1935 is that Ernest Bevin at the party conference attacks George Lansbury and tells him that, look, look at what's happening around Europe. Your conscience should be a still small voice and essentially destroys Lansbury's leadership. Now, Attlee then becomes caretaker leader for the 1935 election. So in a sense, he's the sitting tenant. So when it comes to <laughs> the post election leadership goes. Labour gets 154 seats. So they've, they've gained 102 seats, but frankly, they're still nowhere near government. And there are three candidates for the leadership. There's Clem Attlee, Herbert Morrison, and there is then Arthur Greenwood. And what happens is on the first round, Attlee comes top, Morrison second, Greenwood third, and then Attlee wins on the second ballot. But there's, there's, there's a number of factors around this. I think firstly, people did see the person who was going to be the leader as quite temporary. But I think it says a great deal that having lost that leadership election, Herbert Morrison decided to concentrate on his role as leader of the London County Council because he thought, frankly, he was more powerful doing that than as a, a member of a parliamentary party of 154 people. But secondly, the and this is to Attlee's credit, the MPs of that 1931 to 35 parliament had Gen had genuinely liked working for Attlee. And there was a lot of loyalty to Attlee in that group. But I think that combined with the fact that he was the sitting tenant, the acting leader, which showed that he could do the job, combined to make him the leader in 1935. But as I say, the qualifier is everybody thought it was a temporary job. Nobody thought that this the person who was going to be that leader was going to be the prime minister. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and of course, before Attlee eventually becomes prime minister, he joins um, Churchill's war cabinet. Now, could you just explain the degree to which Churchill eventually 
um, becoming prime minister was down to Attlee because there is a perception, isn't there, uh, quite a, a, an accurate one, that Attlee played a pivotal role in, in that decision. Yeah, and so so this is interesting, isn't it? Because the the war obviously breaks out in September 1939 with the with the Nazi invasion of Poland. Now, it's the, the, this is the period of what's called the phony war, where war had been declared, but you know, the blitz hadn't begun. It was obviously not the uh, the start of the war in Western Europe as we as we understand it uh, now. With with later, of course, that comes with the Nazi invasion of the Low Countries and, and France in 1940. Now, there was no way that the Labour front bench would have, would have served under Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain had pursued a policy of appeasement that had ultimately failed, and things reach a crisis point in May of 1940, where the the, the Nazis have gone through the Low Countries, uh, France is on the verge of falling, uh, and you have what was known as the you know the famous Norway debate, which was about the um, obviously the uh, conflict, uh, the the, you know, the theater part of that theater theater conflict in Norway, and although Chamberlain does win the debate, the Tory uh, rebellion is so big. There's a massive fall in the government majority, and then it comes down to who would uh, replace Neville Chamberlain, and it essentially came down to a choice between uh, Halifax, Viscount Halifax, who was the uh, uh, you know the the Foreign Secretary, and indeed uh, Winston Churchill, who uh, had been a very controversial figure in Labour circles in earlier decades. But had called Hitler's aggression right in the 1930s, and this is where you know Labour will not serve under Chamberlain. Labour will serve under uh, Churchill, and then you get this uh, war cabinet, which is originally a war cabinet of five people: Greenwood and Matley, Halifax, Chamberlain. And Churchill, of course, it changes, and Neville Chamberlain dies, and Halifax goes off to be ambassador to the U.S. But that, I think, shows Attlee's influence at that key moment in our history. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And do you think you could just explain the relationship between Attlee and Churchill? Because there's been a, a, a certain degree of, um, I think, misnomer about the, the the degree of respect that they had for one another. There's the famous black cab remark that Churchill is said to have been. Um, given, but of course he he didn't, and he rebuked someone who repeated it to him. Could could, could you just explain what that relationship really was like? Yeah, I mean, there was, and I think most definitely in the in the nineteen fifties in particular, there was a, a strong mutual respect between them, and you can see Attlee lined up with the, with the other pallbearers at, at Churchill's funeral. But obviously, they had their ups and downs <laughs> in two. Attlee, as he was to be as prime minister, believed in efficient dispatch of government business. He used to get extremely uh, frustrated that Churchill would sometimes turn up, A, had not read the briefing notes, and secondly, as Attlee saw it, often would start just going off in different directions on particular attitudes that he had. And he, and Churchill in the end, sent him a quite strong note rebuking him, saying he was making it really difficult to run the government. I sent Churchill into a sort of huge rage. 
and was going to send this really awful missive back to Attlee about what he really thought of him and all this kind of thing. So there were certainly ups and downs in the Second World because they were so different. They, you know, they, you had Churchill, of course, with you know the hugely persuasive uh, oratory towards the end of the war, going to those great, great conferences at Tehran and at Yalta, and later, of course, at Potsdam, where Attlee takes over. Um, whereas Attlee is far, you know, quieter, not really very well known by the public, but very effective at getting government to work. But what happens over time, particularly in the 1950s, when they've both been uh, prime minister for significant periods, you do get this strong mutual respect. And there were courtesies between them, courtesies between their wives, courtesy even when Attlee took over in 1945, when Churchill came back in 51 allowing each other to stay on a check as if they wanted and you know great personal courtesy between them mm-hmm, absolutely and when um Atlee becomes prime minister in 1945 there certainly is a sense at least from some commentators that it's a bit unexpected as to labor winning that election despite opinion polling prior uh, I- indicating that labor was going to win how prepared do you think Atlee was for taking office in 1945 well it, it's fascinating this because the distrust of opinion polling is what's significant here. So if you look at mass observation, the very early form of opinion polling, from 1943 onwards, it's a clearly predicting Labour will win. But in a sense, people were, were still in the last war. They they thought just as Lloyd George had triumphed in that Coupon election of 1918 as the man who'd won the war, you know, I had another man who'd won the war, Winston Churchill who would just ride to victory. And indeed, Churchill himself was personally pretty popular, but the conservative brand was not. And what happens in 1945 is that, uh, you know, Morrison expected a strong uh, Labour performance around London, but few expected it. And then you get this landslide victory. And remember that it took three weeks to count the votes because the service, service people were all... Uh, around the world. So it took these three weeks to get all the, the votes in. Labour did very well amongst the forces vote and people at the count saw them being brought in and could see Labour had done very, very well in, in that sense. But what then happens is, it, although at one level they weren't prepared for government in the sense that they they hadn't quite expected this and certainly hadn't expected the scale of the win, nonetheless, the kind of things they'd been arguing for for the best, you know, over 10 years, some would argue 14 years. Uh, you could even argue with Attlee, if you look at Attlee in the 1920s in opposition, arguing for things like public ownership of energy, like electricity, in a sense, they had a body of policy work going back decades in terms of the welfare state, the nationalizations. That they 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 did have that preparatory work that they were then able to actually put into effect. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and of course, as you mentioned, there uh, nationalisation was a, a major uh, part of that. The, the the beverage report obviously was something that had a, a great influence on on Labour's nineteen forty five um, election campaign. But the the task that the um, Labour government at the time faced was massive, wasn't it? Just simply, uh, for example, in terms of housing, because of how many houses had been destroyed as a result of the as a result of the blitz looking at those um first years before um the the winter of um 
47, 48, 46, 47, 48. What do you think the kind of priorities were in terms of Apley's mind in what he wanted his his ministers to do? Well, Apley had had huge ambition around the welfare state, the NHS, housing, literally wanted to transform the lot of working people. Now, the problem was initially the financial position. I mean, John Maynard Keynes, who looked at Britain's military Dunkirk in 1940 and said this was the financial Dunkirk. And they managed to plug the gap with a loan from the United States, which wasn't finally paid off until under the premiership of Tony Blair, by the way. So it took many decades. Once they'd secured that American loan, they then went about, you know, the the welfare states that, of course, the idea of old age pensions, the, uh, you know, concept of national insurance goes back to the new liberal government of uh, Asquith, uh, Campbell Bannerman and then Asquith. But this was the first at scale reform that made such a big difference. They then obviously the National Health Services Act was on the statute book in 1946. And then, of course, Aniram Bevan, as Minister of Health and Housing, was building, starting to build houses as well. Of course, they then continued at pace with the nationalisation. So it was a huge amount of reform. And it was reform as well that, um, in terms of the way that it was um, translated to the public, it was very important the degree to which people were able to understand it, particularly in terms of the NHS, wasn't it? Because this was quite a a significant um, step for medical practitioners, there, there, there were quite a, uh, a number of um, doctors who were at the time opposed to the creation of the NHS, weren't there? There were, and there were, there were. And Iron Bevan essentially had to fight two battles here. The first battle, where he had at least support, was in cabinet, and it was in the later part of 1945. And it was who ran the hospitals. Now, Herbert Morrison wanted local authorities to run the hospitals, thought that his London County Council Medical Service of the 30s had treated around about 90,000 patients a year and wanted to give local government that status. And Iron Bevan, who'd served both on the Tredega Urban District Council and Monmouthshire County Council, felt local authorities were vulnerable to central government funding cuts. And Attlee leaned in very heavily so that Bevan won that first battle. The problem then becomes, though, who works in your NHS? Now, on Aaron Bevan, very quickly in terms of the amount that nurses were paid, the way that he he treated nurses with a great deal of respect, with the, the nurses were on board, the doctors, however, were very much not. And Bevan had to here deal with uh, some very deep dilemmas because doctors saw themselves as independent professionals. They did not want to be ordered by the government to go to particular parts of the country. They said they were not full-time salaried civil servants. Now, there's a fundamental problem with this, though, isn't there? Because if you want a universal healthcare system, you have to have power to direct them because of some areas of more doctors uh, than others. So Nive Evan, a combination of carrot and stick, the stick was if the NHS doesn't come into being, it's your fault and I'm going to blame you for it. But the carrot was, of course, a combination of ensuring they were properly remunerated for their old practices and allowing private work 
to continue. And of course, he later said famously, "I stuffed demos with gold." And it was it was it was certainly obviously in the in the long term a, a highly um, effective plan. I'd, I'd like to turn now to the uh, winter of 1947. This obviously had a major impact on the ability of the Attlee government to function and and the, and the entire um, country to function as well. Could, could you just explain what exactly happened in that winter and, and why it was so significant for the for the government and for the people of Britain? So what happens here is that. The winter of 47-48 was a particularly dreadful winter. But the criticism of the government was that they hadn't heeded the warnings. They hadn't properly stopped coal, which, which of course, was the principal fuel. Uh, and as a consequence, you had people literally freezing in their homes. The Minister of Fuel and Power, Emmanuel Shinwell, became something of the poster boy for the Conservatives. They say shiver with Shinwell was the... Uh, the, the the great line that they used on him. And blame started to be pointed in Atlee's direction as to how the government could have misjudged this so badly. And it isn't just to say that this was a particularly deep winter. There were a few incidents where Atlee's hands-off leadership approach had meant that things had just continued as normal. And of course, continuing as normal was not adequate for that particular winter. And it was the first time, really, that the government started to be really shook badly by people, the very people they were meant to represent, being badly affected by what was perceived as their incompetence at the top level. Uh, and it, it, it was it was a pointer towards how the, the, the government was, was to start to find itself in more difficulties as the years went on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And of course... 48, as, as we already um, touched upon, was also the year of the partition um, of India. In, in terms of um, not just that, but other um, foreign affair relations that Attlee had, his relationship with um, Truman, the Korean War, how do you think he engaged with foreign affairs? Do, do you think he was able to, um, despite obviously not having the necessarily the most hands-on approach in, in some instances, do you think he was able to engage with foreign affairs in a particularly constructive way? He did He did in 1950 with Truman, but he took the hands-off approach and allowed Ernest Bevin to uh, to run foreign affairs. I mean, he famously said, if you've got a good dog, why bother to bark yourself with regard to Ernest Bevin? But of course, Ernest Bevin was ill in 1950, so he had to after the Korean War had broken out, went to see Truman. And what Attlee wanted to do, essentially, was to stop Truman using nuclear weapons again, at least get some sort of position where Truman would have to consult the UK before doing something on that scale. And in that, he was quite successful. Where he was less successful was in accepting this enormous defence programme of £4,000 million that is essentially what leads to the resignations of John Freeman and Iron Bevan and Harold Wilson in 1951 in the government's dying days. And of course, um, as, as we come up to um, 1951, this is of course a, 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 an unfortunate time for the um, government to, to have an election, particularly given the, the previous year's uh, general election in, in, in 1950, and, and Attlee leaves office then. How do you think that he felt in 1951 on leaving office, do you think he was convinced that he would only 
shortly be out of office and, and would return soon? Or no, I, I I think it's quite a sad story of misjudgments, nineteen fifty fifty one, because the first general election of February nineteen fifty, for a start, that's a bad month to have an election in the depths of of winter, but. Also because Stafford Cripps, the Chancellor, was was such a sense of high-minded morals, he wouldn't do a pre-election budget. When I mean, you think of the later Chancellors who very happily pre-election budgets, but Cripps wouldn't. And that knocks the majority down to five. But remember, you by then got quite a group of people who've been in office since 1940. Some have been in office like Attlee himself for over 10 years. You've also got a parliamentary party that isn't doesn't contain they're not all young a lot of them are quite older elderly find it very difficult to keep coming to parliament so trying to sustain a majority of five was always going to be difficult the problem though again was that they end up having a second election where they lose power in october 1951 you could argue they were unlucky they had more votes in that election than before or since and also they had more votes than the conservatives but the conservatives won more seats However, had the government waited until the spring of 1952, five, six months down the line, they could have benefited from the economic upswing. Uh, so I think on both cases, they got the timing of the elections wrong. But there is there is a deeper point here as well. There was a symposium at, at Dorking in June of 1950 that's very instructive to read. And, and in a sense, the Attlee government was a victim of its own success. They'd achieved so much. They'd achieved almost all the things their manifesto. But the question then became, what happens now? Do you deepen the nationalisation programme? And speaking you know, pragmatically, the problem is there wasn't much left to nationalise. Um, I think they came up with a sugar beet industry in the end. Um, or did you do as Herbert Morrison argued, except that you, you had embedded these great reforms? What you now needed to do was to reduce what was left of rationing, reduce what was left of the wartime controls, and start to focus on how you produce the conditions of private consumer affluence uh, in the 1950s. I mean, and Morrison was prescient, actually, as to how the 1950s was to, was to pan out. And they never really resolved that tension for 1950, the 1951 election. And of course, then end up in opposition for 13 years afterwards. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And in that period from 1951 to 1955, when Atlee eventually steps down, what do you think he was thinking of in terms of his future? Obviously, the 1955 election sees um, the Conservatives continue in office. They, they win that uh, election and Atlee steps down afterwards. But do you think in, in, in that four-year period, he thought of life after frontline politics, or do you think you had thought of that? This this is, again, Attlee's sense of purpose and duty, because he saw his role as trying to keep the party together. He obviously had the Bevanite group in the early 50s who were going around the constituencies with their, their brains trusts. You had on the other, on the right of the party, you had Hugh Gateskill, who uh, thought that Clem Attlee essentially should strongly discipline these people for not sticking to the party lines. You had this this real dispute within the party where Atlee saw his role as trying to hold the party together to fight another day. What's also interesting, though, is, of course, his another complex relationship of his with Herbert Morrison. I mean, 
He'd not forgotten Herbert Morrison's attempt to take the leadership from him in the hours after the 1945 landslide. And one of the effects of Attlee staying in post until 1955 was to pass the leadership on a generation. And when you come to the 1955 election for Labour leader, again amongst the MPs, like 1935, it's amazing, isn't it? 20-year as Labour leader. What happens is that Herbert Morrison ends up a poor third. Uh, and Niren Bevan comes second because Bevan and Gateskill are the representatives of the next generation. And it's Hugh Gateskill who then decisively wins the leadership in 1955. Uh, though though I can't help observing either. If you look at these, the latest episode of Labour's factional infighting of the 1950s, the next Labour Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, proves to be somebody who was a Bevanite who came to an accommodation with the Gateskillites, uh, which, which may be one of the reasons why he was as skillful a party manager he was later to be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, Nick. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me. But I do have one final question. Obviously, we've discussed Atlee's um, career throughout this podcast. If you were to meet Clement Attlee somehow through some magical window into another uh, time, what do you think you'd like to say to it? I would just like to have the pleasure of explaining. You know, Clem, Clem Attlee has that interview in 1961 where he... Uh, talks about India as, as his great achievement. And of course, that's a that's a monumental thing to, to have done, no doubt about that. But what I would just love to show to Clem Attlee is how his reforms from NATO to the NHS to the welfare state have endured for all these decades afterwards. And of course, it's the one thing that our former prime ministers can never see what really happens to their reforms decades and decades later. And I just like to show him how everything that he did continued to shape the politics of our country for so many decades afterwards. And to just ask him, did he ever think that might be the case? I think that's a a, a wonderful thing and something that uh, if you do ever get the opportunity to allow, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that. Uh, we very much appreciate it. Thank you once again for coming on um, the podcast, Nick. If people want to find out uh, more about you or, or want to buy a copy of the book, where should they go to, to do those things? So all good bookshops, as they say, will, but it's available uh, online. It's available uh, from all the leading bookstores. So just type in aptly a life in politics. And uh, I hope that people do enjoy the book and get to know a bit more about Clem Attlee. I'm sure they will. It's a wonderful book. Thank you once again for coming on, Nick. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.